One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. John Clausen has an interesting perspective on writing children's books. He says they don't have to have a lesson in them. They don't need to teach you anything. They just need to have the kid keep turning the pages, wanting to see what's next. And that has really worked for John Clausen. He's become one of the most beloved writers in childhood book history, not just for kids either. Millennials, Gen Z, people without kids love John's books. So what's his secret? John Clausen, in a rare interview, will tell you. That's coming up. Plus, singing the songs of the Great American Songbook is like Jazz 101. You know, taking old pop standards and turning them into jazz songs is something that's been done since the birth of jazz. Lila Bialy, the Canadian jazz musician, decided to do it a little bit differently. For one, she asked audiences to pick her songs for her. And two, she had to do something new with every single piece of music. Lila Bialy will be here to tell you how she did it. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. The books that you read when you're a kid are obviously some of the most important books you'll ever read. Not just because they teach you how to read or like what words even are, but because they, I don't know, they become home to you. Like when you see a copy of a book by Maurice Sendak or Shel Silverstein or like in my case, Robert Munch, I don't know, it, it makes me feel like I'm a, a kid again. It makes me feel, you know, the safety of childhood again. And for the generation of kids that's growing up right now, that author, that Shel silverstein author, is a Canadian, John Clausen. In 2011, John Clausen comes out of nowhere with this book called I Want My Hat Back, and that becomes a big bestseller. And then um, This Is Not My Hat, The Rock From The Sky, Sam and Dave Dig A Hole, they become bestsellers. And more importantly, they become instant bedtime stories. John wins the Governor General's Award, the Caldecott Medal, like huge uh, awards, especially in children's literature. And most importantly, kids really love his books. Like we asked some kids associated with the program to tell us what they think of them. Take a listen. I want my hat back. This is not my hat. By who? John Clausen. This book is about a fish that got eaten by another fish. And then he said, you stole my hat. And that's all about stealing and That's not appropriate stealing, okay? It it is not appropriate stealing. He's right about that. John Clausen's books have been turned into an Apple TV uh, show called Shape Island. He has a new book, which is brilliant. It's called The Skull. It's based on a folktale, so you know I love that. But for a guy whose books are on shelves all over the world, whose books are, you know, the side of beds all over the world, too, we don't know a whole lot about John. He tends to let the books speak for themselves until now. Here's my conversation with John Clausen. Hey, John, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for being here. Where, where are you? Are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A., yeah. I was in, I was in Korea like 24 hours ago, but I'm, I'm adjusting and I'm doing all right. <laughs> what, what brought you to Korea? They were doing a museum exhibit on myself and Mac Barnett, who writes a lot of the books I illustrate. And there was this great kids museum over there. And we were over there for a week, just turn around. It was great. How was that? What, what is it like being in Korea and there being a museum, museum exhibit of your work? It's 
a trip. It's like flying, you know, 13 hours and then landing and seeing a bunch of your sketches on the wall and kids running around. You don't get over that very quickly, I don't think. It's, I'm not sure you ever do. <laughs> Going that far and seeing your own books is pretty wild. Do you get back to Canada at all? Yeah, as often as I can. I was, we were back in Toronto last summer for about a month and a half because we hadn't been back in so long. That did me a lot of good. The we, I guess, is, is you and your family. Yeah, I have got two boys, four and six now. And my wife. Four and six. So like when you were that age, when you were like four and six, I know you grew up in Winnipeg and and, uh, you're from Winnipeg, which you grew up in Niagara, around the Niagara Falls area. If you were four or six and and we were buddies, what, what would we be getting up to? In between there, in between Winnipeg and Niagara, I was in the suburbs of Toronto. We had this townhouse that sort of backed onto this giant vacant lot that promised to be a school and just never was. And so we would hop the fence pretty young and just go back there and dig up bricks or bury dead hamsters or whatever, you know, the day demanded. But I think we'd probably do some vacant lot time. <laughs> you, you you were sort of an outdoors kid. Yeah, I think so. As much as a suburban kid can be. But it did feel like there was a lot of outdoors, even though we were in the middle of the of the city. It just felt like, because there was always, maybe this has changed now, but it felt like the suburbs still had like undeveloped patches that were felt as big as forests anyway. And so trees and streams and ponds and things were never very far away. Oh, I know what you mean. I grew up in the suburbs too. And there was the, in St. John's and I, I, I never thought about that before. They weren't fully developed. There was still like a river behind my house and there were still trees. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You still feel like you grew up in the country, even though your house was like four months old. Yeah. Even though your house was f- uh, five minutes from a Burger King. And then <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was I was reading about your childhood and teenage years in Niagara. And one thing I read, you say, you said, yeah, I had a lot of jobs, given that there's so much tourism. I had a lot of jobs involving period costumes. What, what jobs and, and what costumes? Niagara has a lot of historical houses and, you know, those old places where wars happened and changed hands and they were hospitals and then they were houses and then they were hospitals again or something. And so my first job was as a tour guide. I, I spoke French because I went to French immersion. And so I got hired as a tour guide slash, I guess, tea brewer for like a tea house slash historical house. But they had, they yeah, they made you wear like historical clothing, which was like felt pants and, and heavy vests and things. And this was like August in Niagara. <laughs> and I would bike to work because I didn't, you know, I was too young to drive. And so I'd get there after like an hour drive down the parkway and then they'd give you the felt pants and you just sweat your way through because they didn't have air conditioning either. The houses were historical, so you couldn't put any AC in there or anything. And we just sit there brewing tea with our felt <laughs> pants, just sweating all summer. It was great. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it was great at the end of that, to be honest. Well, it was. I mean, in retrospect, it was great. I think it probably only lasted one summer. But I, as far as summer jobs go, you could do worse. I guess so. So so when you were a kid, what kind of books were you reading? I know like, I know you, you, you've talked about like you know, early memories at your grandparents' house, right? They lived in Niagara, and they had held on to all my dad's books. And those were mainly the books I had access to. We didn't have a ton of books at home. Um, not kids' books, anyway. But they had had five kids, my grandparents had. And so they were... I think they had like book clubs back then that would deliver you books, you know, that were cheaper than picture books are now. And so they had this whole row of like Dr. Zeus and P.D. Eastman reader books, you know, those that specific kind. And so they had like 50 of them and I had never seen these things before. And so I got really into those and just the general aesthetic of those, whatever was going on in the 50s and 60s, picture book wise, really stuck hard. And then later, probably the same kind of thing where my dad just had rows of like Hardy Boys books. And so I feel like Book-wise, I grew up in, like, the 60s, sort of, you know, that aesthetic. 
Right. You're almost like a musician who grows up in the 80s and 90s, but like listens to the music of the 40s and 50s and 60s. That's sort of what happened, too, is actually I was listening to music from the 50s and 60s, and I didn't really understand new music for a long time. I'm sorry, so sorry. Is there something old-fashioned about your work then? I mean, I know it's hard to be a, a judge of your own work, but just given everything that you just told me? I think so. I don't want to throw back and be nostalgic for the sake of it, you know, but I think that there's a, I'm attracted to what printing looked like back then. There was a sort of a limitation to the palette and especially older books. They're sort of faded when you find them later. And just that whole softness, I never really wanted to be very loud with my colors or anything. So I think uh, that's part of why my books look the way they do. I think also I don't really know what to do with color. I wasn't really trained as a as a painter that way, and so color intimidates me. But but it's also I think yeah, my memories of those older books. Like when did you figure out you were you were into drawing, or you like you had a uh, an aptitude for drawing? Pretty early, I think like grade one or two. At least that's when I started remembering getting encouraged to do it. Anyway, grade three we started keeping journals and stuff in school, and I remember really vividly sort of. We had to write what we did at recess, and I just remember being very bored by that. And so I wrote ghost stories instead and did little ghost illustrations in the margins just to make sure I knew where everything was in the cave or in the forest or wherever these stories took place. And it wasn't so much because I I thought the drawings were good as much as sort of getting information across. Like, if I don't want to say where everybody is in a given scene, I can just draw it. And I felt that was much easier than writing it. And I still feel that way, where it's like, I mostly like to illustrate when there's new information in the picture, so I don't just supplement the writing. I think for people who would know you, they might think that the story is going to be pretty predictable at this point. Oh, okay, Tom, I understand. So John (laughs) fell in love with his dad's children's books growing up and, you know, loved P.D. Eastman and loved uh, Dr. Seuss and... You know, oh, he finds out he's good as drawing, and then eventually he finds his way to being a, a, a children's book author or a children's book illustrator. But no, there's like a bunch of stuff in between. I mean, for one that I find really interesting is like you were working in big studio projects. You were working for like uh, DreamWorks doing Kung Fu Panda. I'm not a big fat panda. I'm the big fat panda. Coraline. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a peach, she's a doll, she's a Talk to me about the jump to book illustration. I didn't know that books were a job until I almost had the job. I don't, no one ever told me that it was a viable thing. Or I don't even, I hadn't even met anybody who did it. I just didn't think people still did this. I I was working for the studios, but the studio work was very complicated just visually. And I was sort of, I was learning really quickly. You know, you get your tools. When you're drawing that much, you just sort of end up finding tips and tricks that you want to try out yourself. But the things I wanted to point those tips and tricks at were much simpler. I think almost as a reaction to how complicated the film work was, I started making pictures that were very simple. And I missed drawing letters. I really liked drawing type and letters. And so I would do pictures with type. And it ended up looking, you know, simple pictures with type next to it. Looks a lot like a picture book. And so almost in like a reverse engineering kind of way, I started to hear from publishers being like, you know, this looks like books. And I was like, it does. And then I started to get book work. And as soon as I started to do it, so much of what I was had been thinking about in terms of what I like to draw or even how I like to tell stories just clicked. I found this format that just fit all of that. 
But was there any anxiety? Like, was there any anxiety about like, hey, I, I have a pretty good career going in this very, I mean, to be honest, very digital form, very collaborative form. And I know there's still collaboration in your work, but was, was the, were there any nerves about about changing over? There was, but I think the way it was set up, I had some sort of multi-year contracts and I sort of finished up whatever I had so I could close the door very gently and quietly so that if I ever did need to come back, I hadn't burned the house down. And I thought when I left, you know, let me, you know, I've I got a crush on this sort of thing, but this can't be a job. There's no way. So I'll just do this for a few years to say I tried it and then I'll apply back to the studios and that seemed fairly safe. And then I just never, I never did. Books just worked out. Like you said, the, the first book that I did, so we had really good luck with it. And it's just, we've kept getting lucky. You're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking to the best-selling Canadian illustrator, John Clausen. Now, the song you're hearing right now is actually on the top of John's drawing playlist. It's called Mother's Love by the late Ethiopian singer Amahoy Tike Mariam Gubru. You can almost picture John Clausen in his studio listening to this, drawing an armadillo who's feeling uneasy, or a sneaky triangle trying to play a trick on a square, or a worried crab who's just witnessed a crime. John Clausen is the type of artist who can say a lot with very few words. And up until this point, we've been talking about how John fell in love with books and his previous career working for a big shot animation studio. But now he's going to tell you a bit about how he developed the signature style that made him who he is and what it was like to step out on his own and some of the pushback he got when he was shopping his first book around, not from kids, but from adults in the industry. One of your last animation projects before you went into books was this music video for U2. It was the song called I'll Go Crazy If I Don't Go Crazy Tonight. Yeah. That is you too, and I'll go crazy if I don't go crazy tonight. I mean, I don't know how much you had to do with this, but one thing I noticed when I rewatched the music video getting ready for this interview is that, like, the characters in that video do sort of have the Clausen eyes, like the wide eyes with the big pupils <laughs> that look that look a bit sh- shifty. Yeah, I made that video with a friend of mine, David O'Reilly, who's a very, very good animation director, and he was making short films at the time. We've always been, the both of us, pretty uh, preoccupied with eyes, I think. As far as animation goes, I think I like David's work because he's very stiff with his animation. He doesn't count on a lot of fluid acting to sell whatever he's doing. And that's how I am also. I don't enjoy showing characters being very physically expressive. It's it's mostly in the eyes. The the eyes of your, your characters have sort of become a trademark of your work. Where, where, where did those eyes come from, those sort of I don't want to say dead eyes, but the sort of unexpressive Clausen eyes come from. I think they're a mixture of a few things. There's a printmaker, a Japanese printmaker from, I think he's from the 50s, called Aseki, A-Z-E-C-H-I, I think. And he did a lot of block prints. And I saw one of his, and it's called, I think it was called The Mountaineer. And he was standing there holding a mug and smoking a cigarette. But he was very, very simple. It looked like he sort of caught him coming out of dinner or something, and he didn't want to be drawn. <laughs> And I loved that. I was like, that's how I feel about drawing characters is people who like feel put upon to be drawn or brought into a book at all. 
And so many of my characters assume that too, where they're just looking at you like, can I go? Is the book done? I want to go home. Like, I don't want to do this story anymore. You know, I'll look at these characters and they do see, (laughs) you do seem kind of annoyed that I'm, that I'm reading about them. Yeah, that was my way into drawing characters at all. It's like the only way I believe in any characters at all is if they are sort of day players who would rather have not come in today. Thank you very much. (laughs) And it works for like, I try and write around it so that it, you know, it works for the story too, that they all look a little confused. But um, but my very deep down, I sort of have a suspicion that none of my characters really wanted to be there that day. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, one of your the first books you illustrated, Cat's Night Out, wins the Governor General's Award in 2010. But the book that really lights your career on fire is a book called I Want My Hat Back, and which eventually becomes a trilogy. So what we asked, uh, we asked uh, the kids of some of our good friends and, and producers here on cue if they would uh, if they would give us for people who are listening to this who may not know the book as well if they would give us a summary so this is a summary from our friend daisy who is six years old it's about a bear that lost his hat he goes to a fox he goes to a frog he goes to a bunny and he actually has his hat and the bear doesn't notice so then he goes to the turtle climbing up the rock and then the bear remembers where his hat is and then he said you stole my hat john how do you how do you feel like daisy did just then i think that that was wonderful that was bang on when, when did it hit you that that book was a was sort of a life changer it took a minute. Books, you know, especially because I wasn't really well known when that book came out. I remember kind of taking it around to book trade shows and getting as much pushback as people who liked it. You know, it's a kind of a weird one. And the only way I could think to pitch it was to sell it or was to read it to them. And so I'd read it to them and then you'd look up to see what the reaction was. And half the time it was delight and half the time it was just horror. And like, I didn't know what I had. I didn't know the book, like landscape. I didn't know what we were, how it was going to do. And at all, I thought we'd just as soon sink as float. So yeah, I was shocked. And I continue to be shocked that this stuff gets around as much as it does. Is is the reason you got the pushback because of of the ending, like I should say for people who haven't read it, the ending of I Want My Hat Back, which is a, which is a children's book, it's implied <laughs> that the bear who loses his hat eats the rabbit who stole it. I mean, is that is that the reason you were getting the the pushback? It was that. And it was also that when he finds the rabbit initially wearing the hat, the rabbit lies very elaborately about not having ever, even seen a hat, much less stolen his. And he's wearing one. But the bear is kind of in the rhythm of the story by then, so he doesn't even look. And then when he is confronted at the end with where where is this rabbit gone, he uses the same phrasing to say I haven't eaten any rabbits as the rabbit used earlier. And so not not only was it sort of portraying potential murder for this hat theft, <laughs> but it was also, you know, apparently saying if you lie about it, that's the only way through. And that wasn't, you know, I don't see these stories as endorsements so much as just like interesting observations on how something might go. And I think the kids get it that way, too. And also, we can have a talk afterwards about how stealing isn't right. They know that by now. But yeah, people who take children's books more literally as sort of like the kids are going to think they can do this, they weren't thrilled with that whole story. (laughs) What what, what do the kids tell you they like about it? I think kids like the mystery of it because the text doesn't say that the rabbit stole the hat, first of all. So the pictures say it and the kids feel ahead of the text, which is very important in a lot of my work is that the text is sort of the adult's domain or even, you know, if the kids are reading it, it still feels more authoritative. And then the pictures have a lot of the real information. And so they feel like they've got something on you. They feel like they've, they've, they're ahead of you. And 
they like that. It makes them feel important, and they are important. And so the book kind of acknowledges that. Oh, John, I love that so much. The idea that I mean, I think about you know reading books to my niece, and you know she's following along in the pictures, and she can't read the she's three, and she can't you know she can't read the words. Uh, so I'm reading them for her, and she's able. You're saying that she's able to look at these pictures and kind of get ahead of me, like get yeah. get a little bit more information than I have. Yeah, and I wish I could say that that was because I understand children or something, but it's not. It's it's mostly me technically as an illustrator would get bored if I was doing the same information that we were writing down. And so just out of, you know, pure keeping myself into the project, if I have to either be behind or ahead of the text in any given situation when I'm drawing it. And that that makes me more interested, but it turns out it actually involves the kids a lot more too, and they get really into it when you do it right. I mean, and, and there's something to be said, and I think we're going to talk about this when we talk about the skull and we talk about folk tales. The idea of stories for kids can be darker than maybe we th- we, we think they can be. I mean, there's a lot of like the the, the, the I want my hack back kind of became a big meme, right? On especially on, on TikTok, <laughs> and even millennials and Gen Z talking about it. Um, I want to play just a little bit of a TikTok reaction. Just take a listen to this. <laughs> this award-winning children's book tells the cute story about a bear that loses his hat and goes on a quest to get it back. You. You stole my hat. And then when the bear finally figures out who the thief is, he goes, Old Testament. It's a cute way to start a conversation about violent crime escalation. So I want to I want to point out that none of the kids <laughs> we talked to were actually disturbed by the ending of the book. No. So I wonder if, if you could talk to me about trusting kids with stories that may be a little bit darker. I think I always liked dark stories when I was a kid because I was such a wimp about every other sort of media. I, I didn't love, I, I couldn't watch scary movies or scary TV. It was too much. But I found I had a lot of bravery when it came to books and scary stories and books. And so that made me feel brave and I would go after them to make me feel that way over and over again. And so I think that knowing how fragile I was as a kid and my capacity for edgy, dark stories, I, I kind of have more rope there than maybe some other people would. I also just feel like, you know, having been reading books to kids these last this last decade, just because that's part of my job, whenever you do say, does anybody want to hear a scary story? no matter how long you've been in the room or how old the kids are, how rowdy they are, you can hear a pin drop after you say that. They really want to hear it. They want to see what you do. Also, I think that it's such an interesting challenge for a storyteller to do it right because you can do it wrong. If you're out to scare the kid, if you're out to just jump out from behind a corner and go, boo, that's easy to do, but it's also not the right way to go about it. They won't trust you after that. You have to establish some tone of trust and sort of integrity, and then they'll follow you around, and then you can take them to places that they might not have wanted to go before. But the work there is to get their trust and to keep it and to make sure that you are okay with them and they're okay with you. I mean, what you hear there isn't isn't that just someone who has a tremendous respect for his readers, even if they are kids who are learning to read, like such tremendous respect for them? That's the first part of my conversation, a rare conversation with the Canadian illustrator, John Clausen, who uh, wrote the bulk of his children's books before he was a parent. So has having kids of his own changed his writing? You're going to find out after this.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. So often the talk about children's stories and media for kids is, you know, we're going to form you where you have some, you have something to learn here. And it just assumes that they're not people yet. They're not complete and they are complete. I love that idea that, that adult books, I mean like grown up books, not like adult books, don't always have a lesson in them. Why should kids' books always have a lesson in them? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the Canadian author and illustrator John Clausen, who, as you just heard, doesn't believe in talking down to your kids. And it's worked out for him. John's a best-selling, award-winning writer, and you or your kid might be a, a fan of his best-selling books like uh, The Hat Trilogy or The Shapes Trilogy. Here's the thing about John. He's not trying to hit you over the head with morals or lessons there's no goofus or gallant, and he's not going to shield you away from the darker parts of the story either. And in that way, John is honoring the oldest children's stories of all time, you know, folk tales that are passed through generations that might be rated R by today's standards, but have entertained kids for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. John Clausen's new book is actually based on an old folk tale. Uh, the story is about a, a young girl who's run away from home, befriends this mysterious skull without a skeleton attached to it. There are, like any good folk story, differences between the way John tells his story and the way that the story was told to him. But you know me, I like, I like the folk stuff, so we get into that kind of thing. And it all goes back to how John came across the story for his new book in the first place. Here's more of my conversation with John Clausen. I was in a library in Alaska doing a book event in Juneau, and I was waiting for my turn because there was a few of us up there doing an event, and so we were all reading. And while it was, I was waiting, I was reading the folktale section. I usually go to the folktale section in any given place because you can sometimes find weird local books and stuff that people have have made there and you find strange stories you wouldn't find anywhere else. But this time I found this book about ghosts and goblins and it was a pretty straightforward one, but I opened the table of contents and there was a story called The Skull. And it was only three or four pages long and I read it really quickly before my my event. And then I put it back in the shelf and, you know, did my thing and got on the plane and went home. But I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about I think just the general setup, but I read it so fast that I, I got blurry on the on the details. And it wasn't until like a year later when I just kept thinking about this story that I thought I should probably read that again. Let's let's take a look at that again. And so I wrote the library in Juno and said, I've got this story called The Skull in one of your books. Can you please find it? And the librarian was like, Yeah, no problem. And sure enough, like she found it. I don't I didn't have a title, I didn't have anything. And she found it and scanned it and sent it to me. And I read it again, and I had changed like at least the last half in my mind and not knowing that I had. And I was like, this isn't what I remembered at all. But I still had access to the story I'd, I thought I'd read, the one that I'd apparently made up the last half of. And I liked it. And I thought, well, this story is obscure enough. I, I looked for a couple versions and there are a few, but they're hard to find. And so I thought, I think I can do this. I think that there's good reasons, both entertainment-wise and just artistically, to, to give this a shot the way I'd thought of it or rethought of it. Um, and I was so interested in that because it does seem like what folk tales do anyway is in the telling of them as they would spread around, even in the old times, they would 
change to get either more entertaining as far as the teller was concerned or depending on the, your audience or whatever, you'd find all sorts of different weird versions of these things. And so it felt organic to do it. I didn't feel like I was running off with something I shouldn't have been. I, I, that's that's so interesting. I mean, I, I have I find myself with the nerdy folklore background I have having that conversation a lot, you know, uh, explaining to people that, you know, some stories don't have authors at all and that you know, people would adjust some of the some of the references to be local ones if they were telling this thing in the you know, story in a different community. And I like the anonymity of it. I've always been attracted to folk art and anonymous art, and where it isn't signed, or if it's signed by someone, you just can't find them or something. There's something almost rebellious in folk art. I find because they're not doing it for the notoriety. It's part of a chain of something, and there, it, it feels like a different reason to make art than how we think of it traditionally, I think. Yeah, my friends who are like deep, deep folk musicians, I've often thought of them as being like far more punk or DIY than like any Fugazi or anything like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something There's something like really, really uh, rebellious about it. And I can't quite pin down why, but like if you see just like the side of a barn painted by somebody anonymous, you're like, that guy was like raging against the machine in some way, even if it's a painting of like a cow. You're just like he was onto something. He was he was mad at something, and that's how this one felt too. It felt in the same way. Uh, the main character in the skull is a little girl, and I've heard you say in the past that you don't like drawing humans or using them as characters. Does this mean you're coming around to it now? <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I first started drawing. I said I was like, I can't believe I'm going drawing a person. It was the only way to do it. But it was a plunge. The story had to be good to, for me to really do it. And also, Otilla herself, both characters, her and the skull, are very stoic. And that was one of the reasons I thought I could do it, is that in my mind, she's very statuesque and she's very brave. And she doesn't really have her eyes are accented in the illustrations, but they aren't very expressive. She goes through quite a lot with her eyes looking pretty much the same. And I really like that contrast. I think that that helps kids through it too. I think if I'd been drawing, really emotionally, you know, strained expressions on everybody and had this story, it would have been too much. And you don't want to put everybody through that. Has having kids yourself, has watching your kids consume media and grow up changed the way you think about what kids can take in? Has it changed the way you tell stories? I think that having kids reaffirmed something that I suspected, but, you know, only suspected having had a bit of years since I was a kid. And that's that there are people so quickly so often the talk about children's stories and media for kids is some sort of betterment, some sort of instruction. You know, we're going to form you where you have some, you have something to learn here. And it just assumes that they're not people yet. They're not complete and they are complete. They're having complete days and they are complete people in and of themselves. The validity, I don't know where you draw that. I don't know where they begin to be valid people that have learned enough for you to tell them a story straight at them. And not having that information, the answer just seems to be, well, then today's the day. You you just do it for them today. You don't try and be like, well, in a year you'll understand, or this book is meant to bring you into a higher place. None of that. You just want to sit them down and be like, we're going to work with what you've got because that's all I can do too. And that attitude, having kids myself and just seeing that, seeing them have their days and seeing them also be so different from one another. I have two boys and they couldn't be more different. And making work for kids, you often also say like, well, well, kids like this, capital K kids. And that's not a thing either because kids are so different. Some kids will like it. Some kids will like this book. Some kids will think it's too scary maybe. Or some kids will think, I just, I'm bored. And you can't get all of them the same way as you couldn't get all the adults with something either. It's just, they're very distinct people. 
I understand what you mean. I, I, I'll, I'll, maybe this is my adultness coming out, but when I was reading the book, I was hunting for a moral, John. I was, I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, I, I understand. The lesson is going to be that the skeleton uh, didn't deserve it, or oh, that the skeleton and the skull—they're actually best friends, and you know, or oh, Tilla's <laughs> mom's going to find her, and she shouldn't run away from home. Like, and right. then at the end of the book, I was just like, oh, that was just an entertaining story. None of that happens. Yeah, I think that it's about if there is a point to it or something I was trying to drive at, the energy felt like it was an engineering some sort of catharsis. I I never read my kids my books. I just get too nervous about it. But while I was making this one, my elder son came home and he'd had a hard one at that school. Something had happened and he was feeling really bummed about it. And it was a hard one to talk him through. I haven't had a lot of practice with that. And so we were just sort of both of us lost for how to talk to each other. And I said, do you want to read The Skull? He knew it. We'd been talking about it anyway. And we read it. And it just sort of, it, there was some sort of a release in it for him. It, it didn't, there's there's not a lot of information as far as why these characters are in the situations they're in. And so you can kind of plug in your own day to it if you feel like. When you say you're nervous to read your kids, your book, do you mean you're nervous that they're going to like fall asleep or yawn or have a, a bad reaction? <laughs> All of the above, I guess. I just, but it is also very strange. I think I've realized this year, maybe some authors go through this. Other authors certainly don't. But when I make a book, my memory is of being on my dad's old bed in his old bedroom at my grandparents' place, looking at books myself. My parents read us books, but I just have such distinct memories of reading books on my own. And so when I make a book, it's for that experience, I think. And that means I won't be there to read it. And the book has to be totally non-submersible, right? It has to work on its own. No one else is going to be there to explain it. It has to float by itself. And when I find myself in the room with the book again, when I'm reading it to people, I was like, this wasn't the plan. This wasn't what I thought was going to, the whole idea was that I wasn't going to be here. And I feel like I'm almost like a double beat reading the book to people. And I can do it if I have to. You know, you go on book tour and you go into schools and you read it to kids. And I've found my way through that. But with my own kids, for some reason, the anxiety of that, it just feels doubly strange. If they ask for it, we do it, but it's never my idea. I don't, I, there's probably some therapy that's needed, but maybe a lot of authors <laughs> for kids go through there where they just find they can't read their own books to their kids. There's something uncanny about it that I can't quite pin down. But yeah, I found I've gotten to be a better reader to my kids elsewhere, though. Like I was never a very energetic book reader out loud. But since we've had kids and it's not my, if it's not my book, I'll do the voices and you do everything to keep them entertained. And so I'm not a total monster about reading books but with my own <laughs> with my own they stay they stay in the garage usually I, yeah I, to be honest john i think it would be weirder if you were like i only read my children my books <laughs> right if it's one or the other let's let's yeah let's favor the one that keeps my books in the box yeah i think so too i mean it is it is a beautiful time to get to talk to you i mean not just because you're you're a dad to two young kids but you know, you've won the highest honors in your field, the Governor General's Awards, the Caldecott Medal. As I mentioned in the intro, people compare you to like this generation's Maurice Sendak or Shel Silverstein. And we asked you to, I think you're too Canadian to reflect on that, but we asked you to pick a song that re represents this stage of your life and career. And you picked Days by the Kinks. Why did you pick that song? I just feel like, I know it's a breakup song or maybe somebody died. It's hard to say. It sounds like is a breakup song. And that stuff doesn't apply to why I picked it. But it also just sounds like someone who really knew what they had while they had it. And they were very grateful. And they understood sort of and they were satisfied with how grateful they were at the end of the experience. And that is sort of how I feel these days is that like, I don't think I'll come to the end of whatever this chapter is without feeling like I really was grateful for it. Because every day it feels pretty crazy that we get to have these great little kids and I get to make books for kids the way I'd like to and, and take care of them the way I, I, I like to take care of them. 
um, it's it's a very, very good chapter. John, uh, a pleasure to talk to you always, man. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you too, Tom. Thanks again. This is The Kinks with Days, a song chosen by the best-selling Canadian illustrator John Clausen. His latest book, The Skull, will be out on July 11. From 1968, that was The Kinks with Days. The best-selling Canadian illustrator John Clausen chose that song. As I mentioned, his latest book, The Skull, will be out on July 11th. And I'll tell you this, I don't I don't have kids, and I loved reading John Clausen's book. So uh, even if you're not someone uh, with children, definitely check it out. When it comes to jazz, I'm always really interested in how great jazz musicians take on standards. What I mean by that is there's this thing called the Great American Songbook, which is not an, a, a literal book. It's like an informal list of great pop songs that jazz musicians take on, you know, like Ain't Misbehavin' or Moon Glow or Autumn Leaves. And these songs make up the repertoire and have always made up the repertoire of some of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. And they're known so they can call out the name of a song and, you know, any jazz musician worth their salt can pretty much make up an improvised version of it on the spot. Let's talk for a second about the Canadian jazz singer and pianist Lila Bialy. You might know her as the host of Saturday Night Jazz on CBC Radio. For her new record, she's taken on that great American songbook. Just take a listen. Every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? Find your fortune falling all over town Be sure that your umbrella is upside down Lila Bialy and her version of Pennies from Heaven. Here's the thing. Lila's approached the Great American Songbook in a pretty different way. She joined me in the Key Studio to tell you how she wanted to take on this, like, almost overplayed list of songs. But we were talking before the mics came on, and I wanted to make sure we turned them on so you could catch this story, because we had just had the great Canadian jazz piano player Rini Rosness on the show. Lila had heard the interview, and she couldn't get over what they had in common. Anyway, here's my conversation with Lila Bialy. Hi. Hi, Tom. Well, you know, it's a funny thing to have you here, because... Um, obviously, we're, we're friends and colleagues, but I don't get to see you that much. You're not. No. Are, are you in the building very much? Mm, once every couple weeks. Not too. Is often. about it. Yeah, yeah, and I think we only met at the Junos in 2019. But I feel the, like I know you. I, feel, I consider you a friend, and I'm a fan. So. Oh, stop it! <laughs> no, really. So, oh. but also CBC family, which is nice. Oh, it is very nice. And you were just telling me the reason I started this interview so abruptly just then, if you were wondering, is you were telling me something. And I was like, I want to get this on the microphone. Yeah. So we recently broadcast an interview with the great Canadian, one of the greatest Canadian jazz musicians of all time, Rini Rosnes, um, incredible piano player. And you were you telling me that you had the same 
high school. She's your hero? <laughs> She's one of the reasons that I ended up in jazz. So like me, foundations in classical music, like me, you know, met this band teacher, Bob Rebliati. Uh, at Hansworth Secondary School. Who, Related to Ross Rebliani, the snowboard player? 100%. No. Ross is his nephew. No way. Yes Canadian way. Olympian? <laughs> yes. Wow. Hero, Ross Rebliani. Hero. Hero. To a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in the high school big band world, Bob Rebliati is also a hero. Bob Rebliati is the Ross Rebliati of the high school big, big band, band world. Okay. Exactly. So you came up with the same teacher. We did. And so he introduced me to her music and... I still had aspirations of going to Juilliard and becoming a concert pianist at the time. And he handed me these records by this woman, Rini Rosnes, who had a similar traje- trajectory, had gone to school for classical and then defected to jazz. And I could really relate to her approach because the classical foundations are there in how she plays and interprets jazz and how she writes. Anyway, she became a huge hero of mine. So to hear your special with her was just awesome. Oh, I'm, glad awesome. You, I'm glad you got something something out of it. Now, can you tell me the story of this this record? Great American Songbook. And we'll talk about some of those songs in just a second. But like, how did this happen? Like, you, you <laughs> wanted other people to pick out the songs for you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something I normally do. So I am known for doing original jazz. And yeah. so for me, the American Songbook was actually novel. And, uh, and to make it interesting for myself, I put a call out to my community over social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and said, what, what do you want to hear us do? And we got 150 requests. And this is during pandemic, so I'm trying to keep you know, myself in the game. Did you have a band around to rehearse stuff with, or were you just sitting down at the piano? And We didn't rehearse. Oh, mm-hmm. jazz. Jazz. okay so you get this (laughs) so you get this you get these 150 responses and you're like okay well and i was arranging like on the fly but how did you whittle down the list of 150 well i i i looked for where there might have been some repeats you know of songs like oh okay more than one person wanted to hear autumn leaves for example yeah the falling leaves drift by my And, you know, in full disclosure, Tom, there were a couple of, arra- of arrangements requested that I had already arranged when I was, like, fresh out of college. Right. And so, you know, that arrangement had been sitting in a binder collecting dust for, like, almost two decades. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to bust it out, dust it off, and, and, and see if we can actually bring it back into the light of day. And so Bye Bye Blackbird is, like, almost 20 years old, <laughs> the arrangement. Pack up all my caramel, here I go, singing low. Well, this is what I, this is what I'm curious about. I got to talk to Samara Joy the other day, and she said we we talked a little bit about her recording of uh, Stardust, hmm. and um, we had a conversation about how these songs. I mean, the 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 narrative around the songs of the Great American Songbook is that oh, they hold up. They're the bedrock of of jazz and, and popular music. And I said, but didn't you, wasn't there a part of you that felt like, oh my God, these songs have been done so many times. If I don't bring something new to them, what, what the hell am I doing? Do I even want to do this? And she was, and we talked a little bit about it. Like, I think anyone who takes on the Great American Songbook in 2023, I'm curious to hear that from your perspective. I can see you nodding your head while I was talking. 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because there are a couple of camps. There are those who, who you know, kind of want those songs to be what they always have been, frozen in time. And our job is to almost, like classical musicians, capture what might have been the original composer's intent. Mm -hmm. But I always feel that jazz is has like forward momentum and is mm-hmm. always pushing boundaries and pushing forward. And it allows musicians like myself, who are songwriters, to bring their own fresh perspective. It may not be for everybody, mm. um, and, but I, you know, with respect for the original version of the song, feel that it's my job to, to, to bring something new yeah. and to bring my own voice to the table because otherwise I, I think you wouldn't do it otherwise no. you, you're, you're not going to do what? how can i make that song any better yeah i can't no. but i can make it different and yeah. i can make it personal but you also took on a classic of the great american songbook that in itself is a classic of jazz you know like we're gonna we're gonna play my favorite things yep. for people who don't know my favorite things a sound of music right oh yeah yeah originally from the sound of music <laughs> Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with strings These are a few of my favorite things But John Coltrane, the legendary saxophone player, does a 14-minute version of My Favorite Things. kind of blows open the world of jazz. It's, it's kind of up there with like, I mean, you know this way better than me, and I feel like I'm explaining hockey to Wayne Gretzky here. But like, but you know, um, the, the way people talk about Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan to open up the folk music world. People talk about uh, Enter Sandman by Metallica to like mainstreamize heavy metal. My favorite things is, you know, blows open the world of what jazz is able to do with the Great American Songbook. So not only do you have the original, not only do you have Coltrane's, ver- you have Coltrane's version of it, how did you approach this song? Well, it's great that you referenced both Sound of Music, Julie Andrews, and Coltrane, because both are in there. It was sort of a nod to both at once, as much as we could muster. So so I just sat down, and and to me, there was like, I don't know, a bit of a mysterious quality, and you get this from Coltrane, to the melody and the harmony that surrounds it. Whereas with Julie Andrews, it's very sing-songy. Whereas Coltrane is more... It's brooding. It's kind of brooding. Mm-hmm. And is it's a soprano. Saxo Kelly, of course, who plays both tenor and soprano. We had to have him on soprano on this one. Yeah. And that's the Coltrane piece. Uh-huh. Um, and then we brought in... Emily Claire Barlow, who in some ways is like the Julie Andrews of jazz to me. And I'll tell you why. Okay. She has the thing about Julie Andrews that I think is so special. And she actually has so much edge. If you've ever heard her in an interview, she's got a lot of range and depth. We interviewed her, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. She's she's badass. She's badass. Exactly the word I was going to use. But anyway, there's a real clarity, a pristine bell-like clarity to her singing. And I do think that's part of her appeal. Mm -hmm. And Emily Clare has the same thing. And so when I was looking at people I could duet with, Mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, she's perfect. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you know she came down with dengue fever in Mexico when it was time to track? So she, ladies and gentlemen, a little behind the scenes peek, is in the throes of dengue fever as she records this vocal. Not to color this performance for you. But anyway, so so that's that piece, a little real slice of life for you there. And and yeah, so Kelly brings 
Coltrane, Emily Clare brings Julie Andrews, and I tried to bring a little of myself to the arrangement, which is pretty dynamic. I'm, ex- I'm excited. <laughs> I, I already did listen to it, but I'm excited <laughs> to hear it again. Can you say who you are and, and introduce the song? Yeah. So I'm Lila Vialli, and this is My Favorite Things. Bialy, the award-winning Canadian pianist, with her version of the classic My Favorite Things. You can find that on Lila's latest album, Your Requests, and that record is out now. All right, that's it for uh, this episode of Q Today. Um, I, ho- I hope you dug. We're doing one episode. One episode today. We've been doing the two episodes. By the way, you know, we just kind of sprung that on you one day, the two episode thing. I'd love to know what you think. Do you prefer the one episode, the two episode? Can you drop us a line? Q at cbc.ca. Uh, send us an email. If email's not your thing, I don't know. Email's everybody's thing. But just in case email's not your thing, you can DM the show. We're at CBCQ or drop me a line. I, I check my Instagram DMs. Maybe too much. I'm at Tom Joe Power. All right, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.